Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the images shocked Americans a century ago, pictures of young children working in factories under dangerous working conditions. By 1938, federal law made child labor illegal with specific protections to prevent their exploitation and abuse. But in the past two years, at least 10 states have introduced or passed laws rolling back child labor protections, including New Hampshire. Now, Granite State children as young as 14 can work around alcohol and 16-year-olds can work an almost 40-hour week. New Hampshire State Senator Donovan Fenton, who voted against the bill, says fixing the state's labor shortage should not rely on child labor. Losing child labor laws is not an option, okay? That's not the way to go, period. How did child labor become one of the latest hot-button issues? Later in the show, new local restaurants help Boston hook its seafood identity. Fans of Piri Piri and egg tarts are lining up for Portuguese food. Wine lovers' renewed enthusiasm for Chardonnay is driving sales in the millions. And some may be sipping it out of paper bottles. You're shipping from the wine shop to home. You're shipping from home to to recycling. There's a lot of shipping involved there. There's a lot of that, um, what they call transport emissions. And something like this really minimizes that. Our food and wine contributors talk fall trends. But first, joining me now, Jennifer Shearer, director of the State Worker Power Initiative at the Washington, D.C.-based Economic Policy Institute. Hi, Jen. Hi, thanks for having me. Also with me, David Weil, professor at Brandeis University and former administrator of the Wage and Hour Division at the U.S. Department of Labor. Hello, David. Hi, great to be here. So I want to lay a foundation for the conversation. Um, Time Magazine did a little brief history talking about uh, the kinds of jobs that children would have been involved in before the Child Labor Standards Act. Let's just take a listen to that. The kinds of jobs you would find children working in ranged from the mines, the factories, the cotton mills, to working out on the streets selling newspapers injuries, even deaths, were very common among children. The parents would often say that they needed the income that their children brought in, that that was what allowed them to continue to survive. Under FDR, the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 uh, was passed, and included in that were um, protections against uh, child labor abuse and exploitation. This was under of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And that then, um, after that, then states made their own laws, but there, there is a federal law in place. And so now we have a situation where those laws, many of them haven't been changed in a while. Um, some of the states are now moving to change them, and they're lessening the power of it. So, David, let's start with you. Um, what's happening here? Well, it's really it's really a shocking trend. The overall number of violations we're finding of child labor uh, have increased 
um, more than 70% over the last few years. And it's not only that there are more of them, it's that we're finding them in the kinds of work settings that um, your historical clip was talking about. We're finding kids in automobile factories um, on the kill floor of, pa of packing houses, of chicken processing plants, and in other manufacturing facilities, in seafood, all, all, in lots of industries where we really haven't seen children working in decades. Uh, and now we're finding them in significant numbers and in very dangerous conditions. Uh, so, so it's unfortunately a real return to, to the past. So, Jennifer, now I've, I've stated that there is a federal law and the state laws are out there, but they're not uniform to begin with. And I thought the federal law would trump state law if, if you know, the, if the state law is less um, strong than the than the federal law. But that doesn't seem to be happening with these states that are changing the law. So you are absolutely right about that. And I want to start by saying states have played a really important role in protecting children from hazardous and abusive conditions historically. Uh, many states were beginning to take actions um, related to particular industries uh, prior to the passage of the really important 1938 Fair Labor Standards Act. And as you noted, since then, states have continued often to fill gaps uh, that remain. You know, our, our Federal Fair Labor Standards Act set a really important but also uh, relatively weak floor for standards. Um, you know, folks are probably very familiar, for example, with the reality that that's the same law that sets minimum wage. It sets it at a very low standard at this point because Congress hasn't raised it in over a decade at 725. So at this point, the majority of states in the country have taken action to go above and beyond that. Um, you're also correct that whichever standard between the federal and the state is stronger is the one that employers are obligated to follow. And so states have, in the, in the area of child labor, played really important roles in, um, as I noted, regulating certain industries and also um, filling gaps. So for example, um, the requirement to uh, have um, 14 and 15 year olds um, fill out a work permit that includes some basic information for them and their families and the employer about what federal and state law says um, is permissible for um, children of that age, uh, the kinds of conditions they can work in and the kinds of hours that are acceptable so that they can still keep up with their schoolwork uh, during the school year. Um, those are requirements that are generally in state laws because they've never been adopted or added to our federal law. And so as we see states um, on this very troubling trend of rolling those standards back, it's leaving uh, new gaps um, that are not covered by our federal law. Um, and David, you've talked about um, these companies knowingly, I'm using air quotes, unknowingly in violation of child labor laws. Talk about that, if you would. Yeah, um, it's really a common feature of some of these major cases um, where you have name brands that we would all recognize, Purdue and Tyson and Chickens, uh, Frito-Lay Quaker Oats and Packaged Foods, Hyundai and Kia in automobiles, who have in turn hired subcontractors to do specific activities. Um, so for example, in um, some of the cases in, in the meatpacking industry, there's a big company called 
PSSI that does uh, essentially does the cleanup work in in meatpacking. Um, and those companies, those companies who are working for the branded names, very often hire labor brokers. Um, and those labor brokers are the people who are tapping into, unfortunately, a large group of undocumented or, or children who are in this country um, awaiting um, actually visa status who have filed for asylum. Um, these labor brokers have brought these kids in many of these cases into the factories, several levels removed from the brand names that we recognize. And unfortunately, the typical response of, of, the, of these lead companies is to say, oh my gosh, we abhor child labor, we would never do it, and kind of point the figure, finger downward. And that's why I say it's sort of unknowingly, but really knowingly um, be involved in, in drawing on um, children to do work that they are really prohibited from doing under the Fair Labor Standards Act, much less, um, you know, separately the issue of, of state laws that you're raising. Okay, so now what we have are uh, an understanding that there's a federal law, there are state laws, they're not uniform, there's supposed to be some action on the stronger law, doesn't always happen. There are companies who are knowingly, unknowingly, as you say, in violation of child labor laws by using these um, brokers to distance themselves from the actual um, present knowledge of knowing that there are children working in the companies and they should not be. But now something else has been happening in the last couple of years, which is why we're looking at this issue. Um, and it appears to be a political move across the country to loosen these laws. Um, we talked to Senator Fenton, whom I mentioned earlier in the piece, Democratic senator for New Hampshire, who voted against New Hampshire's bill, um, which is in place now, and did um, change the standards for uh, child labor, um, about what he sees as an organized effort to change the child labor laws. We're seeing this nationwide attack on these child labor laws. And uh, a lot of states are, are going after child labor laws and weakening them to a point where they can get around the federal laws. And, you know, we shouldn't be weakening them. We should be um, strengthening them. And so what's happening, um, and it's mostly a Republican-led thing, backed by uh, hospitality and um, uh, lodging restaurant organizations who say they're they've been they were particularly hurt during COVID. They've never caught up, um, and there's a labor shortage. And if there's a labor shortage, um, we need to do some other things. And they claim they're not really, you know, really uh, putting the children at risk. But these these are the reasons for it. So before I get both of you to respond to that, um, I want to. Uh, let you hear from Arkansas State Senator Joshua Bryant. Now, Arkansas is one of those states uh, that decided to change the parent guardian permission requirement. Um, Jennifer, I believe that probably would be the work permit um, in the state law earlier this year. So here's Arkansas State Senator Joshua Bryant about why he thought this was a good idea. We need to reinstill a work ethic uh, in our children and removing those barriers and making it easier for employers to hire that child is why I supported the bill. If you have good actors and good employers that want to employ, you know, children under the, you know, over the age of 14, under the age of 16, then they can do that without the, the burden of a government permission slip. Okay. Um, Jennifer, 
the burden of a government permission slip, uh, relying even in his own statement on good actors, which I don't think was ever the issue, right? Yeah, I mean, I think in the two clips you could you just played, you can hear the uh, sort of the contradiction in some of the claims that industry backers of rolling back um, child labor laws, um, uh, the, the claims that they're making. I mean, the reality is we are in a tight labor market and that requires employers who want to recruit and retain employees to raise their wages and improve their conditions. And so, you know, when we're seeing a coordinated multi-industry push to roll back uh, labor standards, what we're really what that's really reflecting is uh, industry's desire to maintain and expand their access to pools of low-wage labor. Um, and in this case, uh, you know, doing that in a really disturbing um, way uh, that can expose children to hazardous conditions or uh, long excessive hours that we know based on research um, can put kids in a high-risk category for their grade slipping, um, academic progress flagging, and potentially in some cases even dropping out of high school, which has very clear long-term um, negative economic consequences um, for their uh, careers as adults. David, um, the rhetoric that we should give children a chance to work um, and we need to respond to supply and demand for labor in this way? First of all, you got to go to first principles. We have in our child labor law a very carefully balanced view about, yes, there are some good aspects of young people having an opportunity to work, but that our first priority for young people is, is education and protecting them. And that's why our federal law and state laws limit the number of hours um, a young person can work during the school week um, at, a, at a job and overall. Um, it's because we have bigger priorities as a society for young people, and that's to get them educated so they can ultimately be successful uh, in the job market. So, you know, overlooking that is is the first um, real problem, I think, of, of, of the advocates of, of relaxing the laws. The second issue is exactly as Jennifer said, you know, I'm trained in economics. If you have a shortage of labor, there's a pretty clear thing you do, which is raise wages. And that's exactly what we're seeing happening in our overall labor markets. We have wages rising as we have labor shortages. Um, and that's a good thing. That, that means people are being compensated for the work they're, they're doing. Um, the other real flaw in this, this argument that the only way we can deal with this is to allow kids to work longer hours and even, yeah, I think, even even more unethically work in situations we know are dangerous for them, is to look at other populations of people where we should be pulling them into the labor force. There are a lot of communities that have been um, excluded from labor market participation, like people who are formerly incarcerated, um, who we know want to work, can work, do the work, um, and can do so um, for good wages. You know, there are just a lot of opportunities to take advantage of the tightness of labor markets um, without relying and going back in history towards uh, tapping more child labor. And Jennifer, I want you to underscore something you said a bit earlier, which is that federal and state laws allow employers to pay young people a sub-minimum wage 
which is not as high as the minimum wage, which you just said in many states hasn't been raised anyway. So we're talking sub-sub um, for the payment that you would make to children if you're employing them to plug in these labor holes. Yeah, there is the option in some situations for employers to pay what's either called a training wage or a youth sub-minimum wage. And we even have seen, you know, crop up in some states where voters have clearly, through the democratic process, approved, uh, you know, voted by very wide margins to increase their state's minimum wage. Um, some legislators then stepping in to sort of undermine that with proposals uh, that would say, well, that's okay, we know we have to accept the higher minimum wage, but for teenagers, maybe we'll only require employers to pay a couple dollars less. Now, those proposals have um, uh, uh, not succeeded in some cases because um, teens themselves have stepped up in places like Virginia. We've seen a similar sort of proposal in Nebraska, um, have stepped up and said, that's not acceptable. You know, folks who are doing um, uh, the same job alongside somebody of a different age um, should not be paid less. Their their labor um, is just as valuable to the employer and generating just as much profit as the person next to them. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Jennifer Scherer, director of the Economic Policy Institute's State Worker Power Initiative, and David Weil, Brandeis University professor. We're discussing why child labor laws are being rolled back in some states. Um, Okay, so David, I'm going to play a couple of uh, clips and I want to turn this conversation to um, another factor that has uh, played a big part, I think, in the changing of these laws, and that's migrant youth labor. So here are these kids. They come here um, and the family doesn't have any work. Uh, So first, I want us to take a listen to New York Times reporter Hannah Dreyer. Uh, She's been reporting on migrant youth labor, and this is what she's seen. I assumed that these kids would mostly be working in agriculture. Maybe some would be washing dishes. But what I found when I really started getting on the ground was something totally different. These are kids working factory jobs in a lot of cases, factories that supply some of the biggest brands, Fruit of the Loom, Ford, General Motors, J. Crew. Mm. We found them producing milk for Ben and Jerry's, packaging Cheerios and Cheetos. Mm. And these are often dangerous jobs. The kids who package hot Cheetos, for example, told me that their lungs burn from inhaling that spicy dust for 10 hours at a time. And to add to it, again, David, before you respond, um, Senator uh, Donovan Fenton from New Hampshire, who we've uh, heard from earlier, is warning that it's these children, these migrant children and children of color uh, that are going to be most hurt by the relaxing of these laws. You know, these immigrant communities, they, they, they come in with nothing and they are trying to find jobs as quick as possible. And everyone in the family uh, helps out in that regard. And with you know, these lower child labor laws, uh, the parents might choose, hey, let's have you going to uh, go work busting tables instead of going to school and getting your GED. You know, those are the ones that are the ones getting hurt by this the most. Same with our, you know, our, our minority communities and poverty-stricken communities because they're the ones that uh, need to work the most. So I just wanted to pick up from what you'd said earlier about um, what should be happening is a look at other cohorts of adults who could uh, be workers, but instead we're doing something else. 
That's right. And it's it's one of the underlying tragedies of this whole story about the growth of, of child labor. Um, we do have a very large number of unaccompanied children who came to this country um, really as seeking asylum um, and, and partly as a, a well-spirited policy, we have allowed children to come unaccompanied and be resident in the United States while they await asylum. The problem has been we don't have systems in place for those kids to be housed in safe places. So they're often not here with their parents, with close family members, and instead um, are staying with maybe other family members, more problematically, with people who have agreed to sponsor them. Um, what that means is they, these kids often come here um, owing a lot of money to the people who brought them into the country, sometimes being asked by the host who were having them in this country to pay for rent, to pay for their food. Um, and of course, no family would send a child unaccompanied to another country unless they were in desperate situations. And so these kids have expectations to be sending money to their families uh, to help support them. And what this creates is a large parole of very vulnerable young people um, who really have to seek work to support themselves, to pay their debts and to support their families. Um, and when that is linked into these systems of labor brokers who then find places of employment for these kids, um, it really sets up of the really hazardous kinds of conditions many of them are working in. Well, isn't part of the problem is that uh, uh, for you, David, to answer, and also Jennifer, is that the enforcement is not very strong. It isn't. And, and the problem is um, uh, a big part of it is Congress has not given the resources to our core labor standards agency, the Wage and Hour Division, or to the Solicitor of Labor, who does very important litigation work to support that um, for decades. I mean, back when I was in the Obama administration, um, we had uh, about 1,050 investigators, and we needed more at that time, and the president at that time asked for it. Um, right now, there are less than 800 investigators available to the Wage and Hour Division, which means they don't have really the, the, the folks on the ground to do the enforcement work um, to, to make sure that these kinds of child labor violations stop. Um, then we could get into the whole issue of the law itself, um, I think, has inadequate penalties for those who violate the law. Um, so it's both the structure of the laws, the fact that our laws need to be given uh, to, to, to allow penalties and other kinds of consequences for violations to become more strict, but then fundamentally that we need to just have more resources to make sure that, uh, that really that the police are on the beat and making sure that these child labor violations don't occur in the first place. Jennifer, what would you add to that? You know, the number of wage and hour investigators that the Department of Labor has on staff is the lowest it's been in decades. So you can go all the way back to the early 70s when we had far fewer workers uh, for them to uh, protect. And we have fewer investigators on staff right now 
than we did in the early 70s. So it's really a, a crisis um, in our enforcement system that uh, Congress has not kept up with um, funding and staffing those agencies. And then also one of the things, um, we have a terrible backlog in our asylum system, which means that um, children and family members who are in many cases, likely eligible for asylum protections, which would come along with work authorization, are not getting um, that kind of coverage for months to years at a time, which leaves them in this limbo, very vulnerable to um, unscrupulous um, employers or labor brokers and stifling agencies, as David described. So dealing with that backlog and better funding for our labor uh, agency enforcement um, uh, those two things would go a fair way um, to addressing some of this. And you've noted that the same groups pushing for these changes and the lessening and the loosening of these restrictions are also pushing for legislation to get rid of access to resources for poor families, um, which is difficult for low-income families. Yeah, many times. We haven't talked about a very important, um, uh, you know, along with National Restaurant Association and some of those industry groups you mentioned, pushing for rollbacks in child labor legislation has been, um, you know, a couple of right-wing um, uh, sort of dark money groups, um, including Americans for Prosperity, the Koch-backed network that works uh, on state legislation across the country, but also a, a sort of lesser known group, um, Florida-based uh, called the Foundation for Government Accountability. And they have been linked with just about all of the major um, state legislative proposals to weaken child labor laws. And um, as you just mentioned, one of the things that um, we've we've learned in the past year is that they are often backing a package of state legislation that includes um, rolling back child labor standards, but also limiting families' access to food assistance, to Medicaid, uh, so really increasing the economic desperation of our poorest families. Um, and, you know, we know that globally, the root cause of um, hazardous and oppressive forms of child labor is poverty. And so it's a really, uh, you know, distressing um, mix of policies that uh, can increase, you know, increasing poverty at a time um, when uh, employers are being told that uh, they don't have to follow uh, longstanding guidelines on protecting youth. So I um, am a little puzzled by why there hasn't been actually more pushback, um, um, more talking about this, because this is rather alarming on many levels, and I'm, I, I'm at a loss to try to understand why the, the kind, because these are, you know, serious changes in the way that the laws have been, even if they were... Uh, somewhat weak. Uh, they offered more, so somebody is not as they are in New as they can in New Hampshire now, working almost forty hour week. Uh, that seems I don't understand how that works. If you're also a kid going trying to go to school and do what you're supposed to be doing on that front, you know, a thirty five hour week is a full week. I I'm just. Uh, do you all have a sense of anything to add about, you know, is this just people are unaware or what's happening? That's a great question. And it's really, Kelly, to the name of, of your show. I mean, it's under the radar. Uh, you know, these stories on individual cases have gotten some traction 
60 did, Minutes did a big expose on, on some of the cases in meatpacking. Um, but I think what you need to have is really a sustained effort to make people aware of the problem. Um, you started the segment by talking about Franklin Roosevelt. You know, Franklin Roosevelt called child labor this ancient atrocity. Um, it is something that a, a developed and, and a society like ours uh, ethically shouldn't allow to persist. Um, but it does because we have this coming together of large numbers of vulnerable workers, um, this kind of breakup of the employment relationship that allows labor brokers to kind of slip children in. Um, and I think to your question, still a lack of public awareness about how how broad and sweeping this surge of child labor is right now. Um, and I think the more we talk about it, and the more we talk about first principles about we, what we owe our children, um, particularly children who are struggling to get in, you know, get their education so they can have a good career in the labor market, who often are children of color, um, who face enough barriers as it is, that we as a society should be committing more to the enforcement of our laws, certainly not the relaxation of those laws, um, and really focused on helping kids to be successful in the long term, which begins with education um, and not increasing the amount of labor they do in, in dangerous conditions. So I want to talk about, um, you know, there will be people who will listen to this to say, well, I don't know what we're supposed to do with this labor shortage. We've been trying to get the adults back. They're not responding. Um, you know, it's they're not such really different uh, changes to the law. So I don't I don't see what the problem is. Uh, and before you two respond to that, uh, here is a uh, Senator Donovan Fenton from New Hampshire again. He uh, owns his own business and. Um, he just has a, a different take about this. I have a small business and, you know, the answer isn't to weaken our child labor laws. It's to pay a livable wage. It's to provide child care. It's to provide uh, strong education systems. It's to provide housing. Um, that's how we attract a workforce. We don't take the other route and say, oh, you know what? Um, let's, um, you know, let, let's attract, uh, let, let's change our child labor laws in order to get more employees. So I'd love for the two of you to offer up what some solutions, some right now solutions, um, because as I'm hoping as people get to know, uh, think about what's going on, there'll be some response. And what he said is absolutely true. But those are long term solutions. I I don't know what the short term is other than don't change the law. Well, I think first off, what our economists at EPI continue to find in the post pandemic recovery is that actually labor force participation rates have bounced back and exceeded pre-pandemic levels already. And that actually includes um, the labor force participation rate for um, youth, age 16 and, and young workers, 16 to 24. Um, so the narrative that we are facing um, a labor shortage generally across the economy um, does, is not borne out in those statistics. Um, while it may also be true that certain employers in certain sectors are finding difficulty in recruiting and retaining workers right now, that's 
that is um, a feature also of the post-pandemic recovery where we are seeing um, pressure on employers, especially at the low wage end of the spectrum, to improve their wages and conditions because workers have had many opportunities um, across the past couple of years uh, to change jobs, to move into higher paying work. And that's actually a really positive development for our economy after uh, you know, going on 40 to 50 years of um, lagging wages and wage stagnation. David? I would say on a, on a hopeful level, um, a lot of our federal basic child labor standards could protect from some of the abuses we're seeing. And it gets back to if we properly resource um, our agencies that go out and do this enforcement. They have enforcement powers to do things like hold companies liable, jointly liable for these practices. And, and again, I would cite the fact that our federal Department of Labor has been doing some very innovative cases that have pushed that responsibility up and held them to those responsibilities. The issue is uh, people who are committed to making sure our kids have the kind of quality education that they should have and be protected from this should be pushing for the resources to make our enforcement agencies able to do their jobs. Um, changes to our federal law to increase these penalties and make um, employment responsibilities even more clear. Um, and so we can create the kind of level playing field so that the responsible employers out there can do the kinds of things that Jennifer just described are happening overall in our labor markets. And that is improving the kinds of wages that uh, particularly low-wage workers are, are receiving and making sure we all benefit from the recovery of, of the overall economy without sacrificing um, our children to, to be pushed into doing jobs that they shouldn't be doing. I thank both of you for this very thoughtful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Jennifer Shearer is the director of the State Worker Power Initiative at the Washington, D.C.-based Economic Policy Institute. David Weil is professor at Brandeis University and former administrator of the Wage and Hour Division at the U.S. Department of Labor. Coming up, new local Portuguese restaurants are popping up all over greater Boston. From salt cod croquettes to lobster with Azorean pineapple, foodies are eager to sample the spicy and flavorful Portuguese cuisine. And wine lovers are stocking up for fall with an old favorite, Chardonnay. It's our Food and Wine Roundtable. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.